Thank you. He wrote that, said that just like I wrote it. That was very nice of him. <laughs> Good morning, Harvestside. I'm, I'm glad you're here today. It, it really is a privilege and an honor for me to be able to uh, share with you today. Sometimes when you've been in a church for a, a long period of time, you get a little bit apathetic about it and you think things is always like this. But when you're fairly new, like we're kind of newbies just here in the last year, when we come in and see the marvelous and wonderful things that you're doing here, it's just exciting for us to see it. And you may not realize how great this congregation is, how many lives that you are changing. This is a wonderful place to be. Now, if you're new here today, come next week because I won't be preaching, and Pastor Kurt will be. So you come next week because it is a great place to find spiritual maturity, spiritual health, and to find friends and fellowship in the family of God. Well, I want to ask you a question as we begin today. Have you ever had a crisis in your life? (laughs) Right now, probably. (laughs) Now, I'm not talking about if you're thinking about what you're going to buy your mother-in-law for Christmas or if you're even going to buy your mother-in-law anything for Christmas. I'm talking about a crisis experience where the decision that you make in that experience possibly is going to affect the entire rest of your life. I want to talk to you about three different people who had that kind of a crisis experience. One of them is an occupational crisis, and that involves my son. We have three sons, and my oldest son was uh, employed at a small college in Indiana, small Christian college. He's sports information director there for many, many years. And two years ago, due to the declining enrollment in all Christian small colleges across the nation, and especially in the one where he was working, he was laid off. They laid off some 40 different people. Now, when you're in your early 40s and you have a family and uh, you've been working in this place for a long period of time, there is a a period of apprehension, of anxiety about what's going to happen next, how's this going to work. And so when he got that news, uh, he called me and he began to express some of those anxieties and, and some of those issues that he thought that he would be facing. And so I tried to calm him down. We talked for a period of time. And then I said to him, Justin, I want you to look up Luke chapter 15 and verse 31. Because that is exactly how your mother and I feel towards you. Now Luke 15.31 is the prodigal son story. And that particular verse comes at the end of the story. When the father is talking to the eldest son who did not leave. And he says to him, I am always with you and everything that I have is yours. I thought, hey, that's pretty good. You know, I patted myself on the back. I thought I had gotten things done. I was feeling pretty good about myself. He hung up. And about... Ten minutes later or so, I got a text. And the text said this. Wow, Dad, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? Harsh. You know, here I just told him that everything that we had was his. He could have anything he wanted. And so I called him on the phone. And I said, Justin, what are you talking about? Why did you say that was harsh? And he says, the scripture verse you gave me, Luke fifteen twenty one. I said, no, Justin, Luke 15, 31. <laughs> because Luke 15, 21 is, happens earlier in the story where the prodigal son is coming home to the father and he looks to the father and says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. <laughs> I am no longer worthy to be called your son. <laughs> so... <laughs> So communication is pretty important, is it? Did we get it right? (laughs) A second story involves a crisis experience of literally life and death. There was a lawyer in the city of Chicago back in the 20s and 30s, and he went by the nickname of Easy Eddie. 
And Easy Eddie was a very wealthy lawyer. He had basically all the things that he needed. He was very successful. He was rather unique in the fact that he only had one client. And that client was Al Capone. Maybe you've heard of him. And Al Capone said to his lawyer, Easy Eddie, I don't care what you do. I don't care how much you have to lie. I don't care who you have to bribe. I don't care how many illegal things you do. The only thing I care about is you have to keep me out of jail. And Easy Eddie was pretty good at it. He did keep him out of jail for a long period of time. And he uh, reaped the benefits of such an experience with Al Capone. He had a mansion that covered an entire city block in the city of Chicago. It had servants that came there. He had an indoor swimming pool in the 1920s. He had literally everything that he wanted in life from a possessions point of view. But even though his business was successful, his personal life was a mess. He had divorced his wife, was living with someone else. His wife had left and gone to St. Louis with their two older daughters. But he was left with a son to raise. He gave the son the benefit of basically everything that he possibly could, put him into private schools, gave him all of the things that one would think would be necessary to be successful. But as his son became a teenager... His son began to look at his father and emulate some of the value systems that he had. And Easy Eddie said, "Mm, I don't know that I want this to happen. I can give him everything except for two things. A good name and a role model of a good father. So Easy Eddie came to a crisis experience. What am I going to do? Am I going to continue in this lifestyle that is not only immoral but illegal? Or am I going to do the right thing? And he decided that he would go to the FBI and he would turn state's evidence against Al Capone. He recognized that to do so, the mob would probably put a hit out on him and he could eventually even lose his life. And as a result primarily of Easy Eddie's testimony, Al Capone was sentenced to 10 years in Alcatraz for income tax evasion. And sure enough, the mob gained good on that threat. And so as he was driving down the streets of Chicago one day, They opened up fire on him, and you'll see in this story, he was in his car, he hit a pole, and it killed him. So he had to make that decision. Do I do the right thing, or do I do that thing which will protect my possessions and what I have here on this earth? The third story is found in Matthew chapter 19, and it begins at verse 6. It's a story that is told in three Gospels. In two of the Gospels, it says that he was rich and young. In the Gospel of Luke, it says that he was a ruler. So this guy's hit the trifecta. I mean, he's young, he is wealthy, and he has power. What more could you want out of life if you were a non-believer and thinking this is all there is? But somehow this rich young ruler came to a crisis experience, and he said, even though I have all of these things, there's just something not quite right. There's just something in my life that doesn't quite measure up. And so he decided to go to Jesus. And picking up the story at verse 6, we see this. Just then, a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? He was basically asking Jesus this question. Am I good enough to get into heaven? Now, typically in our society, when there is some kind of a reward at the end of an experience, we think there's something that I have to do to earn that reward. 
So if I'm good enough, I have to do some good things so that I am rewarded with whatever it is. And conversely, if we do bad things, we usually figure we're going to get punished for that. So he wants to be on the good side of things. And so he says, what good thing do I have to do in order to be accepted into your family, into the eternal kingdom of God? Now, when we come to the spiritual side of our life, oftentimes we carry over this philosophy that we have learned from society. And so we know that heaven is great. It's a wonderful reward. It's something that we all look forward to. We may not totally understand it, but we know that it's good and it's wonderful and we want to be there. And we say, well, if that is great and wonderful, I must have to do something. I must have to pile up a lot of good things so that I can be accepted by God. But what do we do when being good isn't good enough to get into heaven? Verse 17. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Jesus didn't immediately answer his question. Instead, he focuses on the word good. And in one sense, there are many good people in the world. If you've ever gone to a funeral, you can attest to that. The guy may have been the biggest rascal on the block, but when they get up to talk about him, they say, this guy was a really good guy. Have you ever been to a funeral where they said, oh, this guy was a bomb, you know? No, they don't do that. This guy was a great guy. He was good. And they say that because when good is used in a social sense in dealing with relationships, they're talking about a comparative thing. But when we are talking about good in a spiritual sense, When we are using the word good as an ultimate understanding of perfection without blemish, as ultimate goodness, there is only one who is good, and that is God. And so Jesus answers the question this way. Well, if you want to try to work your way to heaven, here's what you need to do. You need to keep all the commandments. But not only do you need to keep the commandments, you have to keep them perfectly. Because one slip-up, one blunder, one disobedience means that you are disqualified. Now, the reason I say that is because the Word of God says that in James chapter 2 and verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. What chance do we have? He says to him, if you break one law, it's just as if you have broken all of the laws. Jesus doesn't bring this commandment issue up before him to teach him that by keeping it, you can have eternal life. If he did that, that would be a works theology. Jesus brings this up. He brings up this commandment to show him that he needs salvation, not how to attain salvation, but that he needs salvation. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, it says this. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So how many people can be declared righteous by keeping the commandments? No one. It helps us to understand that we need something else. We need Jesus. Look at verses 18 through 20 now. Which ones? 
he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these things I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? He's feeling pretty good about himself. He said, I got this thing, you know. I, I did this. I kept all these commandments. Those five commandments all deal with relationships between one another, except for the very end one. And it says at the end that we should love our neighbor as ourself. Perhaps Jesus is thinking back to the time when the disciples asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second's like unto the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which time the, the rich young ruler thinks, you know, I've got this. Because he was thinking in different terms than Jesus was thinking of. He was thinking of the obvious outward sins of keeping the Ten Commandments. He was looking at external obedience. But Jesus was looking at the heart. You see, you and I try to qualify people's goodness with a yardstick. How many good things have they done? But Jesus qualifies goodness by a dipstick. He looks down into the heart. And while man looks at the outward thing, Jesus looks at the inward. He looks at the heart and he sees, what kind of a heart does this person have? Do they have a heart after me? Do they have a heart that yearns for who I am? Do they have a heart that yearns for me? Even though they might be externally obeying all these things. Jesus could have easily pressed the point here upon the commandments. Because in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he says to us in that Sermon on the Mount, you know, if you have anger and hatred towards someone, that's the equivalent of murder. You know, if you have lust towards someone, that's the equivalent of adultery. He could have said to this rich young ruler, oh, by the way, have you ever disrespected your parents? Oh, have you ever fudged on your expense account a little bit? <laughs> have you ever told just a little lie in order to get by it a little bit? Because if you have, remember, if you've broken just one of these, then you are guilty of breaking them all. But he zeroes in on what he considers to be the greatest sin in the rich young ruler's life. He didn't argue with him. He just went straight to the heart of the matter. And his greatest sin was greed, possessions. Take a look at the next verse in verse 21. Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. He says, if you want to be perfect, or the word actually means complete, or if you want to be accepted by me, go sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and follow me. And then this earthly treasure that you have had and accumulated here on earth will be transferred into a heavenly treasure. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, uh-oh, am I going to have to, let me, let me help you out here. Not all Christians, in order to be accepted by Christ, have to sell all of our possessions and give it to the poor. He is saying this. This is not a story about possessions. This is a story about our hearts. He wants to know, is he willing to do whatever it takes to come into my presence? And so he ponders this request for a moment. His answer is not recorded for us. But possibly he thought something like this. I got a lot of stuff. And you know, I like my stuff. My stuff is pretty important to me. As a matter of fact, I don't want to lose my stuff. 
Jesus, have you seen my house? It's pretty nice. I don't want to lose it. Jesus, you realize how much land I have? Do you realize how many servants I have? Do you realize how much cattle and animals that I have? I don't want to lose that stuff. Jesus, I even have, I even have season tickets to the chariot races. Am I going to have to give those up too? It's hard to give up our stuff, isn't it? Maybe he isn't familiar with the verse in Mark chapter 8 and verse 36, which puts it like this. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Back in the 1970s and 80s, there was a a man down in South Florida by the name of Dr. D. James Kennedy, and Dr. Kennedy developed a program of evangelism. And that program was designed so that we could present the gospel in a non-threatening way. And so it would be a conversational style. And in that conversational style, we would try to help people understand really the kernel and the crux of the gospel. And we used that program for several years. We don't use it much anymore because the format is a little bit different now. But as part of that uh, particular style... We would sit down with someone, and I would say to them, "Uh, John, suppose you were to die today. Now, I know you're not going to die today, but just suppose you were to die today, and you were to stand before God, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? What would you say? And probably 90 or 95% of the people that I dealt with in that always said something like the same thing that the rich young ruler is saying. You know, I've been a pretty good person. I try not to hurt anyone. I try to be nice to people. I try not to do anything that would be illegal. I just, I think he would accept me because I'm just a good person. In verse 22, it says this. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. On the one hand, he was being offered a life of forgiveness, of joy unspeakable, of peace that passeth all understanding. He was being offered a life where he could be significant and meaningful and could make a difference in the world. And at the end of that, he was given heaven, eternal life with God forever and ever. And on the other hand was possessions, crisis. Which do you choose? The life of Christ Or do you choose possessions? Verse 23 and 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Pastor Kurt, a few weeks ago, in a a message that he gave when I was sitting where you are today, said this, all of you here this morning are rich in comparison to the world. If you think that this story is only about the wealthiest people within this congregation, you have totally missed the story. It's about me, and it's about you, and it's about all of us. 
because we recognize and understand that we are so blessed in the country in which we live and have so many different opportunities. Why did he say it was hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? Now, riches, of course, are not a sin, but they are a danger because we have a tendency when we begin to accumulate things, all of us do, When we begin to accumulate assets, we begin to accumulate possessions, we have a tendency to take our focus on that which is eternal and put it upon that which is temporal. We have a tendency to focus on the getting and keeping of our possessions instead of our relationship with God. It doesn't have to be that way, but it is a temptation and a danger that we have. Excuse me. And once we get it, you know what we do? We say, I'm not going to let this get away from me. And then we start worrying about losing it again. So, what is this camel and eye of a needle stuff all about? Well, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven is a proverb. And it was a proverb that was given in the Middle East, and the people of that time would have been very familiar with it. It was a proverb that talked to them about something that was seemingly impossible or an absurdity. And it was common among the Jewish people, among the Arabs, among the ethnic people of that time. Now, there aren't a whole lot of camels here in the United States, so we probably wouldn't use this as an illustration. But what we might say is something like this. You know, I wouldn't do that in a million years. Now, we don't really mean we wouldn't do it in a million years. We're saying that's an absurd thing. It's not impossible for that to happen. It just couldn't happen. It couldn't happen for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. And we're going to come back to that story here in just a minute. Verse 25. He says this. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Because the disciples, being part of the Jewish sect of that time, had read Deuteronomy, and the people of that time felt like if you were rich or if you were wealthy, if you had great possessions, God must really like you. And this is a sign of the blessing of God. And therefore, if the people that God likes and has blessed already can't get into the kingdom of heaven, how are we going to ever have a chance to get into it? We have no choice. We have no opportunity for that if they can't get in. And now verse 26. And verse 26, always when there is a passage of Scripture or when there's a parable or a story or probably a chapter, there is usually one verse in that parable or in that story is what I call the fulcrum verse. It is the crux of the matter. It is the centerpiece of the story. And if we can learn what that verse means, then all of the rest of the verses that are around it tend to come together and support that verse. In my opinion, anyway, verse 26 is the key verse in this entire passage of Scripture. It helps us understand the camel and the eye of the needle. It helps us understand why we could never be good enough to be accepted by God. It helps us understand the grace of God. And it says this, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And when we look at this verse, when we look at it physically... Is it possible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? No, it's humanly impossible. But God, if he wanted to, I don't know why he would, but if God wanted to, he could so shrink that camel so that it literally go through the eye of the needle. With man, impossible. The virgin birth with man, impossible. 
with God, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, when it comes to the spiritual nature, which is the most important aspect of this particular passage of Scripture, when it comes to the spiritual nature of humanly this is impossible, but with God all things are possible, what he is saying here to us is this. You can try as hard as you want to be as good as you can, but you're never going to make it without God. But when we come to God, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we bow to the grace and mercy and love of God, even though humanly it's impossible for us to save ourselves and drag ourselves up by doing enough good works, when we fall on the grace and mercy of God and repent before him, he says, God does the impossible. He gives us new birth. He puts us into his family. And the power of God's grace can reach people wherever they are. And that's why it can reach rich people like uh, Joseph of Arimathea or Zacchaeus or Barnabas. It can reach poor people. It can reach lepers. It can reach people here and across the world. It's only through the power of God's grace that that is possible. So during World War II... There was a naval aviator by the name of Butch. And I think we have his picture here. Butch was stationed in the South Pacific on the USS Lexington aircraft carrier. He was a naval pilot, and they would take off from that base and do bombing runs down in the South Pacific. And one day, he and many of his friends left for a bombing run. It was February the 20th, 1942. It was the height of the war in the South Pacific. And as he took off, and they were many miles from the ship, he happened to look down at his fuel gauge, and he recognized, I don't have enough fuel to complete the bombing mission and get back to the base safely. For the individual who was supposed to fill up the gas tank, who was supposed to make sure he had enough fuel, didn't do his job. And so he radioed his commander, and he said, what should I do about this? And the commander said, you've got to turn around, and you've got to go back to the base because there's no way you can do this without running out of fuel and crashing. And so he did so. And as Butch turned around and he headed back to the USS Lexington, as he was just a few miles from the Lexington, he looked into the sky, into the distance, and he saw a squadron. And it was a squadron of nine Japanese bombers. And they were flying in formation and they were headed for the USS Lexington. And he recognized and knew that all or at least most of the individuals who were pilots had all taken off that day for various bombing missions. And the USS Lexington would be virtually indefensible. It would be a sitting duck for the aircraft to be be able to protect itself. So Butch had to make a decision. Do I go immediately back to the Lexington? Do I get on board? Do I tell the people to get down as low as you can because we're going to be hit and hope we don't die? Or do I do the right thing And do I turn toward this squadron of nine Japanese bombers and try to discourage them from attacking the ship and the people that I love? There was a camera mounted on the front of Butch's plane. And later when he got back to the ship, the camera recorded what happened that day. He flew toward those nine individual planes and he individually, as one plane, opened up his 50 caliber machine guns on the wings of his plane and he shot down and destroyed five of those nine planes. A sixth plane was so uh, damaged that it had to turn around and return back to base. He kept firing his 50 uh, caliber machine guns 
But then something happened. He ran out of bullets. And now what are you going to do? There's still three planes left, and they're headed toward my ship. And so once again, he made the decision. He put his life at peril. He said, I'm willing to do the right thing. And so he began to fly in and out of the formation, trying to clip the wings or clip the tail of the planes to disable them or discourage them. And eventually a miracle happened, and they did. They turned around, and they went back to the base without attacking the USS Lexington. After this story had been recorded and gotten to Washington, D.C., Butch O'Hare was nominated and received the first naval ace of World War II. He was also nominated and received the Congressional Medal of Honor for his bravery and for the heroic way in which he saved the people of his ship. The next year, in 1943, Butch O'Hare was killed in an accident, a bombing raid. And after the war was over, Chicago decided, what can we do to honor our hero of the war? What can we do for this brave man who was given the Congressional Medal of Honor but later sacrificed his own life so that we could be free? And so they decided to change the name of the airport to O'Hare Airport or Butch O'Hare Airport. And if you go to Chicago today, between Terminals 1 and 2, you can see this plaque and this story that I have just told you recorded for you. There's also a statue there of Butch O'Hare. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why would Butch O'Hare do that? Why would he put his life at risk? Why would he say, this is the right thing to do, even though it may cost me my life? Well, there's probably many factors that are at play at that. But possibly it was the way he was brought up. Possibly it was the way his father had taught him how to make decisions in the midst of a crisis. Because earlier in his life, he had witnessed his father who had had to make a life and death decision of whether to do the right thing or whether to continue doing the wrong thing. Because his father was Easy Eddie O'Hare, the lawyer for Al Capone. Maybe you're facing a spiritual crisis today. And you're trying by good works to get accepted by God. Now, don't get me wrong. God wants you to do good things. But that's not the way we get accepted by God. For God says to us in Ephesians chapter 2, this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest we boast about it. It's the gift of God. It's called grace. We call it amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. We call it grace that reached down to where we are and took this selfish and sinful person and did a miracle in their life, something that no human could do. But it was not impossible for God. It was possible because we fell upon the grace of God. If you are here today and you're in the midst of a spiritual crisis, have you ever fallen on the grace of God? And once again, I ask you this question. Suppose you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? I've been a good person or I fall upon the grace and mercy of God 
and I have repented of my sins and received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And he's asked me to follow him, and I want to follow him the best that I know how. In Jesus' name. Thank you.